So I think some questions are coming in now. Yeah, um, so uh, Victor Agbeemi, uh, Agbeemi, Victor, says, thank you, sir, for this wonderful teaching. I need more clarity on one of your statements, which is salvation is not about our motion towards God, but God's motion towards us, if I'm correct. You're correct, uh, Victor. Notice it that everything that has to do with the gospel, as you, if you follow the storyline, what is the Bible teaching us as you follow the storyline? Sadly, we just go into some of these stories and just want to quickly apply it. And I'm not saying that there are not things to apply to us. But you must first see that the Bible is the disclosure of God by his plan. In other words, the plan of God in redemption reveals the character of God. So he's disclosing, he's revealing himself as he's revealing his plan. And his plan ultimately is, his word, is shown in his word, but that word also um, the embodiment of that word the embodiment of his plan is the person of jesus jesus is god god's revelation okay now if you follow that plan what you realize is that it's always god coming take genesis chapter 3 even when they fell did they go and meet with God and say, we want to have a discussion with you about how we fell? No, it says that they heard the voice of the Lord. They, they, they heard the, um, the voice of the Lord as, as he came through the garden in the cool of the day. And then God started to question them. And then he, he found out, they, he said, yes, they have fallen. Okay, when they have fallen and God was cursing them, you know what? God said in, in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. That was the first announcement of the gospel. God came. God came and promised that I would do something. It was God that came to the garden. They didn't go and meet God. And in fact, even in the garden, who clothed them? They clothed themselves with fig leaves. But God came to make a promise, and God came to clothe them. After that, what happens? In the time of Noah, is it that God, God um, is it that Noah sort of made, he, he made his way of escape? God was coming in judgment because of sin, but how did Noah escape? God came to Noah to tell him, build an ark. When Abraham, uh, God was going to do, use the plan through Abraham, God, he says God came to Abraham and made a promise to him, and you all nations of the earth will be blessed. When God was coming to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened to Lot? God sent angels to come and bring Lot out. I can go on and on and on. When Israel was in bondage in Egypt, it's not as though they tried to save themselves to go and meet God. God came down through Moses to deliver them, and then God came down to come and um, make a covenant with them. They did not initiate a covenant with God. When you come to the time of David, David wanted to build a house for God. God said, you will not build a house for me. I will build a dynasty for you. This is the plan of salvation. These are pictures as the plan is being unfolded, unfolded. And so even when God comes through the prophets to tell them there's judgment, God always comes through those same prophets to say, but the time is coming. Ultimately, when all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, what is, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is God who became a man and came downward to heaven, from heaven to earth. We used to sing a song, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my death to pay. Cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I leave your name on high. Now, even when Jesus returned, sky, to the throne, 
what happened? The Holy Spirit came. That is, now the unfolding of the plan. Now that Christ has died and is risen, the unfolding of the plan is still God coming, the Holy Spirit. And even when he wants to send the message, the message of the gospel throughout the whole earth, he says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes before you can be my witnesses. And then he says, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of them that what? Bring good news. The direction and the motion of salvation has always been from God towards us, not the other way around. Is it that we love God? Yes, we love God. Um, it says that uh, all things work together for the good of them that are, um, that are called, uh, that all things work together for the good of them that are, that love God, that love God are called according to his purpose. Yes, they love God, but he calls them out first according to his purpose. They love God, then Paul then says, not that we love God, but uh, John says, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. Paul at one point says, oh, now that you've chosen God, well, it's not so much that you've chosen God, but that God first chose you. Jesus said, it's not that you chose me, but I chose you. Need I go on? And so, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ comes to meet us, the gospel comes to meet us, and eventually, God in the consummation comes down, heaven comes down, and Jesus Christ returns. That's what I mean by the motion, the direction of the motion of salvation has always been from God to us. Why? Because salvation is by God's sovereign grace. Not by we working towards. Moses said, don't say in your mouth, who shall ascend to heaven? And Paul says, that is to bring Christ down. Who shall descend to the dead? That is to bring Christ up. The word is near you and is in your mouth. That whosoever shall confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God raised him from the dead shall, shall be saved. All right. Um, Demola asks, "We will get new bodies, but what of the unrighteous? Is it these is it these bodies that will endure torment in hell? How is that possible if it is mortal?" That's a good question. I've been, I was expecting something like this because obviously I didn't talk about the eternal state of those who are not. See, then that's because we're talking about gospel hope, right? We're not talking about condemnation. But of course, there's the other stream. And not just, um, I think Daniel 12, verse 2, first says that there'll be those who would rise, um, they'll, 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 there'll be a resurrection of, of both. In fact, not just Daniel, but Daniel speaks about the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says that there'll be a resurrection, John chapter 5, that there would be, again, coming out of grave, and though some will go into eternal condemnation and some into eternal bliss. Paul, as you saw in Acts 24, 15, says that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And then when you get to Revelation chapter 20, you see that the death and Hades gave up their dead and people were judged according to the books and, the, and whoever's name was not written in the book of life was sent to the lake of fire and brimstone and that they were condemned forever and ever. Yes, the truth is that those who are dead will be given a state. It's not the resurrected state of Jesus Christ, but they will be put in a state where they will be tormented forever and ever. Why? Because to notice, when God banished Adam and Eve, he was, there was a, that's a depiction of hell. Because to not have a relationship with God, remember, it's the relationship with God, with God coming to dwell among us, that is a picture of what we are expecting at the end. 
But what is a depiction? What, what are we expecting of the end outside of God if we are not dwelling with him, if our relationship is not restored? Is banishment. Open to 2 Thessalonians 1. We open to 2 Thessalonians 1. Look at what Paul says there. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. I keep calling it because I'm trying to get that. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. So this is the end. Revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished how? With everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So you can see Adam and Eve being banished from the garden. Um, the children of Israel exiled from the promised land because the garden was where they could meet with God out. The children of Israel exiled from the promised land. Why? Because in Jerusalem was, Jerusalem was the city of the great king, and that's because his throne was in the temple, if you like. That's where God was dwelling. So they were banished from that. And so to be banished from God's presence eternally is what it means to be in hell. And the Bible says just as he gives you eternal life, which depicts both quality, that is the kind of life, and the time that is forever. It's the same thing you have with eternal damnation. In Matthew 25, he said he will separate the sheep and the goat, and that the sheep will be, the goat will be tormented eternally. There's always a parallel in terms of what happens over time, and in terms of what happens in, ter um, in terms of the quality of what is experience, there's always a parallel between what happens in the good side and what happens in the bad side. It's the same amount of time, but where one is experiencing glory and love and, and flourishing in the presence of God forever, the other one is experiencing torment, funny enough, in the presence of God forever. In Revelation 14 it says, they will be tormented before the presence of Christ and his angels forever. Now, some of these things, they speak in languages that we can only depict that way. We don't understand the actual reality of it. We do know that it's the most dreadful and most terrifying thing that can ever be described. But I don't want to get into too much language that I can't get. It's obvious that they will be given a state where that it will be made possible. That's what the Bible teaches, okay? So let me, I think... Before I come to Okwe-Yemi-Ola-Bi, let me go. I think there are some questions that have come through um, um, WhatsApp. So let me go. I don't know the name of this person, an anonymous for WhatsApp. Good evening. Was Adam then created with the imperishable body and only got transformed to the perishable one after the fall? Okay, that's the first question. Also, what happens to believers in the time between when they go to sleep and when Christ returns? Okay. Um, was Adam then created with the imperishable body? Now, what we do know is that, I've used this description. I hope it will not confuse people. Adam was created without sin. So he wasn't, Adam, Adam without any disobedience was not going to die. You, you, you know, we don't even know in the time of the garden and from when Adam was created to the fall, we don't know how much time that was. We don't know. Because we measure time of, a, of an individual 
based on the fact that they are going to die. But if he wasn't going to die, we weren't going to talk about his age. When it now says that in, in Genesis chapter 5, that Adam lived 905 years, I think that probably starts counting from his fall. Because you really don't live, you, you exist for 900, he existed for 905 years because the direction was going towards his death. So the sin brought in the death. Death came through one man and death by sin. Romans chapter 5. All right? Yeah, Romans chapter 5. Death came through one man and death by sin. Okay? So yes, Adam was not created to die. Adam disobeyed God. Adam rebelled against God. Adam decided to live like God. And whenever we decide not to worship God, we are already breaking our relationship with God. And God is the one that has eternal life. So to move away from God is to move away from life. The direction of towards God is the direction to life. Right? The direction towards God. I come to me. Right? All you who are heavy laden and um, heavy laden, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you um, 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 uh, rest and joy for your souls. So direction towards Christ, direction towards God is always life. Direction away from him is always death, is always perishing. Right? We are not of those who draw back and are perishing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. We are not of those who draw back, I can't say it in, in King James, we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but we believe unto the saving of the souls. So when we move away, when we draw back from God, we move towards death and perdition, right? For God loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, perdition. And so, yes, our bodies perish in the direction away from God. And so when Adam moved away from God, he was moving towards death. All right, but that wasn't how he was first created. Okay. Um, yes, and so it, got, it, that it was the fault that led to that. And then you also ask... What happens to believers in the time between when they go to sleep and when Christ returns? The sleep is not so much that they are not existing, that they are, they are just in a, in a... There are some people that think that, that there is no consciousness. No. This, they go to heaven and they are with the Lord. Jesus Christ is in heaven now. They are in heaven. Because they are disembodied, they can't be on earth. Earth requires you to have a body. So they are in heaven that's what happens to people who die in Christ. They are in heaven. And the sleep is saying that they are experiencing rest. Remember, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. So it's extending the metaphor to then say they are experiencing rest. The other one is they're experiencing torment. Right? Torment and rest. So those who are in this world without Christ, ultimately, no rest for the soul. The enemy, it says that he wanders throughout the whole earth, seeking rest and finding none. That's torment. So you experience torment here on earth, and then as you are waiting the final judgment, you can't, they don't, the Bible doesn't describe those who have died outside of Christ as resting. It's torment. And then the final judgment is also depicted in a place of ultimate torment. But those who are in Christ, as depicted, are dying. When they die, they are asleep. They are in a place of rest. But what that means is that they are in heaven. 
In, the, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that when we come to church, uh, there's, a, there's a uniting of the heavenly and the earthly. So it says you've come out to Mount Zion, right, to um, the living, to, to the city of the living God. You've come, that's the heavenly Mount Zion. You've come unto Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. You've come to God, the judge of all. And it says to the spirit of just men, righteous men made perfect spirits, disembodied spirits, they're also gathering. Revelation talks about them being around, somewhat around the throne of God. So they are in heaven. Departed people who have died are brought immediately into the presence of God. But they will not, the, the presence of God and the existence they have, it is still short of what we will have when they are united with their actual, their bodies for eternity and are now in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why we said they are kept in holding. They are kept in the waiting room. It's a glorious, magnificent waiting room, but it's not the ultimate hope because in the waiting room, you are still waiting for something um, that is the real hope. All right, another question. This is from Shola. Uh, good evening, City Church Lagos. Please, can Pastor Femi expand on what he meant when he, he said, Christ is not in control of things on earth now, but putting things in place. Does this mean things happen? No, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shola, I did say that. I said he is in control. I said not all things are under his feet. Um, maybe I should explain that. Uh, uh, open to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Um, um, Hebrews chapter 2 says, verse 5 says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, he's quoting somewhere. What is, uh, he's quoting Psalm 8. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care. What is humanity? Son of man that you, you, you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Now, he speaks about, in Psalm 8, he's speaking about humanity. But the writer of Hebrews is going to eventually apply that to the supreme human, the last, the final man, that is Jesus Christ. In putting, so after the quotation, he then says in verse 8, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we, see, we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered there, so that by the grace of God, he might, test, uh, he might taste death for everyone, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting for, it was it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect to what he suffered. So you see that Jesus Christ becomes a perfect human. He is now the ultimate one reigning over all things, but he's still putting things under his control. And I'll finish it with this with this quotation from 1 Corinthians 15, which we read from. But this is towards the uh, earlier part of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Verse 22 or 21, for since death came through one, a man, one man, that's Adam, the resurrection of dead also comes through a man, that's Jesus. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruit, that Jesus Christ is the first one that resurrected. Then when he comes, those that belong to him. So the resurrection that happens when Jesus Christ comes. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all 
dominion, authority, and power. So in other words, all dominion, authority, and power have not yet been destroyed. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his footstool. You see, for he must reign. He started already, he's already been reigning now. Once he, if you read Acts chapter 2, it says when he went to heaven, he began to reign by pouring out the Spirit. So he must reign. He's reigning, but the, the effect of that reign, he's already the king, but the effect, the earthly effect of that reign has not finally occurred as long as you're having wars, as long as you're having injustice, as long as you're having personal and social sin, as long as you're having um, uh, cultural sin, as long as you're having demonic powers that are still causing uh, mayhem, the effect of his reign has not reached its full completion. And he tells you exactly when it does. He says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, the full combination of what Jesus Christ's kingdom, the establishment of his kingdom is meant to bring, as long as people are dying, that hasn't been... It, all of the, the control, the, the effect of his saving kingdom has not been consummated. So he is in control of all things. There is nothing that is outside of the control of Jesus Christ. But with regards to the effecting of his plan to bring it to the consummation, that hasn't finally happened. It will happen when he returns. Okay? All right, let's go back to YouTube. I don't know if any has come from Facebook. I've not yet checked there. Okpayemi Ulabi says, why would there still be a new heaven if divinity and humanity will come together in the new earth? So don't mistake it. Okpayemi, um, there's a way we speak about one reality by bringing two things together. Right? We often speak, we say it was raining cats and dogs. You don't mean that it was raining cats and dogs. It means that in the reference to cats and dogs, you are talking about one reality, um, um, one reality which is that it was raining heavily. So when he talks about, you know when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he's not talking about um, one space and one space. The heavens and the earth basically is, is, you know, sky and whatever. The heavens and the earth is talking about this world. That's what it means. So when he says, I, I see a new heaven and a new earth, he's talking about a new cosmos. All right, but that new cosmos is going to be the is going to be a uniting of those who are on earth, those humanity whose place is the cosmos, and the space where God and angelic heavenly beings had always been. There's going to be a unity of both of them. So it's not when it says creating new heavens and new earth that he's saying. There's still heaven here and this is still earth here. That in this new cosmos, in this new cosmos, and it refers to the cosmos as heavens and the earth, in this new cosmos, you are going to have a uniting of the, um, the divine and the human space. You are going to have a uniting of the spiritual and the natural sphere. That's what it means. I hope that, clar that clarifies that. All right, Ebenezer, in what order does the rapture, new heaven, and great tribulation occur? Ebenezer, thanks for that question. Um, what I will first do is to refer you to um, 
in this in our Theology Day podcast or here on YouTube, by looking at the book of Revelation, we do challenge and basically refute the the teaching of the rapture and the teaching of the rapture and then the framework that even um, this, this sequence through which the rapture then um, uh, features in. And I said, I don't, that's such a new invention in Christianity. It's only about 200 years. And really, the Bible just doesn't show that to happen. And by that, you know, you probably are familiar with it. The framework that says, um, um, so Jesus, God was dealing with the Jews. Jesus comes, and the message goes out to the non-Jews. That sets up the church. So God pauses. He's dealing with the Jews, his, his people. Then this message goes out to the Gentiles. The Gentiles form the church. Then um, Jesus returns and then raptures the church. Then there's a great tribulation as God starts with the Jews. There's a turning to the Jew, uh, from Jews to, to Christ. And then, but the Antichrist comes, and the Antichrist wants to gather people to come against the Jews. Jesus comes back, destroys the Antichrist and those people. And then Jesus sets up a 1,000-year reign. And then Satan is bound, but then Satan is loosed. And then Satan gathers people to come and war in Armageddon. And then when Jesus Christ destroys them, then starts the eternal state. That whole framework, I don't, it's just not, it's too convoluted, it's too, um, I, it's just not consistent with what the Bible teaches. It takes a reading of Revelation that doesn't respect the way Revelation actually is written, but also it doesn't, it doesn't make Revelation and what you see in the, New, in the Old Testament and New Testament, it just doesn't square up. And actually, the framework for, the, for, for, for what the Bible presents as the plan is actually much more, um, it's, it's, it's more simplified, but also just even the concept of the rapture, which you get mainly from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16, 17, 18. Um, it just doesn't teach about the transportation of, of, of Christians. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4, if you notice, it has the last trumpet, and this 1 Corinthians 15 we read had the last trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4 says after the last trumpet that um, um, people will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as the Lord, uh, those, those who are dead will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord with the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then 1 Corinthians 15 says after the last trumpet, there will be the dead, they will be raised up first, and then there would be those who would be changed. And so essentially what 1 Thessalonians 4 is teaching you is that it's not a rapture like people escape and go to heaven. It's not that Jesus Christ comes to snatch people and go to heaven so that he came the second time to snatch people and go, and then he'll come a third time to set up a, a kingdom and then a fourth time to then bring the eternal state. It just doesn't take three or four multiple comings of Christ. It's what happens at the end. Jesus has only one second coming. He comes at the end, the final trumpet, and then he's saying the first people to rise are the dead, not those who are alive. And just like meeting a dignitary, right, a dignitary that has come, like, the, like governors go to meet the, the, um, the president, 
It's giving you how Roman generals were treated who have won wars and that dignitaries go to meet them. And so these dignitaries are people who have come are resurrected from the dead just as Jesus has resurrected from the dead. They are in the same state of Jesus. Right? Those who are dead with him will come back with him. And then those who are alive and remain will then be changed into that state. It's not teaching a rapture. And so I would say, uh, quite frankly, um, what's your name? Um, Ebenezer, that the there is no need for the order of how the rapture will take place because there will be no rapture. What we are promised is that there is a change of state either through the resurrection or if you are alive and remain, you become, you enter into the eternal state. Now, I don't know if that sounds controversial for you, but if it does, please just, just go through our Revelation series, Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and particularly in 2, that's where we really do challenge it, right? in, the, in the second part of Revelation 2. And we'd love to hear back from you. Maybe you come back for another one, and if you need some clarification, that would be great, okay? Um, is there any other question? Okay, from YouTube. Let me see. Well, all right, so there's another question for, on WhatsApp from Faith Anyola. All right, um, this is from Mixler, actually. Is Jesus the same as God or God Jr., that is, the so, uh, Son of God? Very good question, Anyola, very, very good question. Um, because there are many forms of, of people who teach it. I've heard, I remember when someone said, this sounds very clever. He said, God the Father is deity, but Jesus the Son is divine. Yeah, it's like, that's just a clever play on words. Um, he's not a junior God. Because there's no such thing as a junior God. You know, in the Yoruba traditional religion, we'll have Edmari, um, Ludmari. is the supreme God. And then you have the Orisha. The Orisha are if you like, lesser gods, you know, ancestors that have departed, but were of, of old. So people like Shongo, um, Yemoja, these are the pantheon of lower gods, but there's the Olodumare. And you have that in other kinds of religion, in, in Greek mythology as well, you do have these lesser gods, and then there's the, um, the supreme god Zeus. But Christianity just doesn't teach that. Christianity teaches, you mustn't forget this. Can I give you... Um, can I give you seven statements you, would, you shouldn't forget? Um, seven statements you shouldn't forget about what Christianity and the Bible teaches about God, both from the Old to the New Testament. First one, there is one God. There is one God. Second, the Father is God. Third, the Son is God. Fourth, the Spirit is God. Fifth, the Father is not the Spirit. Uh, the Father is not the Son. Six, the Son is not the Spirit. Seven, the Spirit is not the Son. At uh, the Father. Right, let me say it again. There is one God, one. The Father is the God, two. The Son is God, three. The Spirit is God, four. The Father is not the Son, five. The Son is not the Spirit, six. And... The Spirit is not the Father's seven. So how, how is that possible? First of all, just from a logical standpoint, I have not told you nonsense. Because I have not said that 
there's a law of logic, it's called law of uh, non-contradiction, which says basically th that you cannot say something is something and say at the same time that it is not that same thing in the same relationship. What do I mean? I can't say, my wife's name is Tosin. I can't say that I am Tosin and I am not Tosin in the same relationship. I can't say that. Um, but what if I can say in some ways I am Tosin in one relationship and another way? So for I'll give an example. Tosin is Oshunui. Femi is Oshunui. But Tosin is not Femi and Femi is not Tosin. Does that make sense? You see, we are the same in one relationship and we are different in another relationship. We are the same in the relationship of surnames, but we are different in the relationship of first names. So it is not a contradiction, it's not nonsense. It will be nonsense if I say we are the same in first names and we are, this, or are not the same in first names, as in uh, and, and in surname. And so, because then I'm saying I'm that person. So what we have with the Trinity is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are, this, are, they are the same, that is, they are God. Not three gods, one God. The Father is God, the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. But they are not the same when it comes to personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. So they are united in being God. They are united in being and then they are different in persons. And you say, does the Bible teach all of that? Yes. The Bible teaches all around, I, and um, time will not allow me to, to go through it, but it expressly, for instance, in John chapter 1, which we quoted, just taking the Father and the Son, it says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So that means if the Word was with God, there's the Word and there's God. But the Word is God. And later it shows us that that word is the Son, and that God was first talking about is the Father. The Son is God. So, and then you then find when Jesus came to earth, he did so many things, people worshipped him, he didn't stop them from worshipping him. And as a Jew, <laughs> God is not a human being, except Jesus shows that he is, you know, worthy of worship. I've answered this question about Jesus being God in, if you just go to Instagram and look for is Jesus God under our FAQ series? Just scroll down, you'll be able to find it. Is Jesus God? And I give a number of scriptures for that. So he's not a junior God. He is eternal God because the Bible teaches that God is eternal. So there's no way that one of the persons was eternal and the other one started at some point to be eternal. You can't start to be eternal. You are either eternal or you are not. Now, when we say God the Son, He's, it's not like the way I have a son that I gave birth to a son, and so the son could not have existed. Um, the son could not exi have existed around the same time. That is not how Jesus is the son of God. He is the eternal son of God. He is the eternal son of God in that there is a father, there is a son. They are different, and that he is eternally proceeded from the father. That's some technical theological language, but... It's just trying to show you that there is a distinction between them as the eternal son of God. But that eternal son of God, that eternal son of God 
has not always been human. So what we call the incarnation, John, John 1.14, when it tells you the, that in the beginning was the word, the word was God. That word that was God, that son, eternal son of God, at some point put on humanity. And when he became king, because he was born in David's line, all the kings in David's line, human kings, were called the son of God. It wasn't saying that they were deity, that they were divine. It's saying they were God's adopted kings. So Jesus, when he becomes the eternal king after David's line, he becomes the son of God. Not becoming the son of God in eternality. Becoming the son of God as, Dave, as the king um, in David's line. So I hope that helps. Yeah, and yeah, I hope that helps. I think we put a number of messages on that. So I just want to know there is the eternality of Jesus, of the God's, of the Son of God, as the eternal Son of God, always has been God. But we now want to talk about Son of God in line with the Davidic kings. Jesus Christ ascended to that throne after his resurrection and ascended to that throne when he went to heaven. All right? Okay, I think that is the final question. I don't think there's any other question again. Right? I'm not getting from my team here. And I am not seeing. Okay. All right, yeah, Beniza, please do that. Thank you all. Thank you all. So next week, we're we closing with uh, this series. Next week, we want to see, having summarized all of this thing, what the gospel, we've said the story, the benefits. Do we just wait until Christ returns? As in, do we repent, give our lives, and just wait until Christ returns? Oh, yeah, we have the spirit. But does the gospel help us think? Does the gospel shape us in how we think? There's power that the spirit works through in the gospel. But does it help us think? So now that we've spoken about the gospel story, the gospel definition, and then we've spoken about the gospel, uh, gospel status, gospel life, and gospel um, hope, in helping us think and shaping our lives, we're going to look at gospel ethics. Gospel ethics. And you'll be amazed about how the gospel permeates how we should think about life and all the circumstances from marriage to work to the social aspects of our lives to the cultural aspects of our lives. Understanding where this gospel is, it has a lot to say about how we think. And when you merge the thinking with the power of the Holy Spirit, you will then live what you call a gospel-centered life. That's what we'll be treating next week. And so invite somebody, help them to catch up with uh, what we'll post on, online, and we'll love to see you there. Till then, remain safe and God bless you.